This is The Bouquet Toss, a wedding planning podcast brought to you by TheBudgetSavvyBride.com to help you decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. Welcome back to The Bouquet Toss. Today, we are taking a look at wedding planning with a psychological twist. After all, a wedding is about so much more than what color flowers you choose or whether or not you wear a veil. A wedding is a celebration of your marriage, and while the terms wedding and marriage are often used interchangeably, they actually describe two very different things. Therefore, not only do couples need to navigate wedding planning, but marriage planning as well. With us today to dig deeper into this idea is Annabelle Seif. Annabelle is a licensed clinical psychologist at Therapists of New York, as well as the founder of Before the Leap a fun and interactive premarital workshop where couples learn and practice the skills needed for happy, lasting relationships. Thank you for joining us today, Annabelle. We're super excited to talk with you. Hi, it's so nice to be here with you both. Thank you for having me. Of course. So to get things started, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you got started with your focus on couples counseling in your clinical practice. Sure. So I am someone who has always been interested in relationships. I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't think that even is something unique to psychologists. It's something that most of us wonder a lot about. It's a goal that a lot of us have and don't learn a lot about. But as I pursued psychology, I was drawn more and more to couples therapy. And so I developed a specialty in that. And at the same time, I also had friends going through the process of getting married. And one friend was talking to me about her experience with pre-cana. Are you familiar with pre-cana? It's like Catholic, right? Yes, exactly. It's Catholic premarital counseling kind of vibe. (laughs) Exactly. That certain, maybe not, I think it might be most parts of the Catholic church require couples to do this course that they provide on marriage preparation. And I was hearing about this as I'm studying psychology and thinking that is such a great idea. What a cool thing that the Catholic church is doing and why doesn't psychology have its own version of this, right? We have so much science around what makes happy lasting relationships. Let's figure out a way to provide that to couples in this period of their lives. So as I'm learning a lot about psychology and couples therapy, I was also developing simultaneously this course um, of how to launch yourself into this next phase of your relationship. So the premarital period, whether you're talking about getting engaged or engaged, um, even couples who are moving in together, right? Because that is also often a time when people start to think about the future and it's an opportunity to capitalize on the excitement about this next period, learn the skills needed for a happy lasting relationship according to the most contemporary relationship science and to have the hard conversations that we all need to have when we are joining in a essentially a legal contract, but also a shared future with another person that can be really hard. And we often don't even know how to go about having them. So it's a way to teach the skills and then practice the skills by having these conversations. I really love that. I mean, I think that talking about marriage as skills that you have, I think, first of all, that's something that we could adopt for like everything in our lives, like parenting Mm -hmm. and um, even going to school or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Like these are all skill sets that need to be cultivated to really do them most successfully. And I love that it takes like a little bit more of a scientific approach to look at it because there is a lot with relationships specifically, I think, that 
Um, you know, like the narratives culturally are like, oh, you find your person and it's like, you just know, or like <laughs> love at first sight or, mm-hmm. and yes, we love to play into the romance of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the reality of those things is really not tangible mm-hmm. and you can't really like make a relationship, a marriage work just by having those fun, glittery feelings of like, I saw you and I just knew. <laughs> right. It's like a it's like a byproduct of growing up in like the rom-com era, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we have this idea that the hard part, the struggle is like finding the one, mm-hmm. but it's like, that's why every rom-com ends after they get together. You don't see all the hard stuff that comes afterward. That's mm-hmm. like where the real work is. And so I love that you're really trying to help equip couples with like the tools that they need to navigate their marriage for the long term. I think that's so important. Rom-coms and Disney movies, like Disney fairy Mm -hmm. tales. We won't unpack this right now, but I do feel like there has to be some sort of tie between why so many millennial couples who like grew up watching Disney movies Mm want to like get married or honeymoon in Disney. (laughs) Yes, the psychology of Disney couples is a a dissertation in and of itself. And I think, but I think it speaks to like a concentrated version of something that exists in the larger culture. Yeah. Which is this wish for the fairy tale and this wish for things to be, to get easier. And I'm not saying that marriage should always feel like a slog and that it's always work and it's always using skills. You do need that sparkly feeling towards this person to draw on in times of conflict, in times of disconnection, but knowing that it's a flux, right? Mm-hmm. That, that both are needed. And there's this quote that I love that love is not a feeling, it's a practice. I think that can help prime couples. Of course, there is the feeling of love, but that sustaining love over time takes effortful attention. And yeah. that, that doesn't have to actually feel like a slog, right? It can actually feel like a devotion um, in the way like a mindfulness practice can feel like one of like it, setting an intention of something that's really meaningful to you and brings a lot of value to your life. I love that. Put that on a tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something we have to acknowledge is that when we talk about counseling or therapy, like at all, not even just in terms of couples, in terms of just the world, individually, solo, whatever, there's stigma there, right? Mm-hmm. And so working to like destigmatize couples therapy as like a term or marriage counseling as a mm-hmm. term, I think that is something obviously like collectively as a society, we need to work a little bit more to do. Mm-hmm. But because those words have such a stigma with them, I think a lot of people don't really even understand exactly what they mean. Mm-hmm. So can you describe what the difference is between marriage counseling and couples therapy? Yes. With premarital counseling, the goal is to start off your marriage on the best foot and to have a happy lasting relationship. So it's designed to help engaged couples prepare for marriage by doing that skill teaching and having those important conversations. It's typically time limited, which is different often than couples therapy, and it can be delivered in a group format or individual. And it's often taught by religious leaders too. It's not just clinicians and therapists. On the other hand, couples therapy has a different goal, which is to process old wounds and to unpack your conflict patterns and resentments. 
the Gaumann Institute, which is an institute that studies relationships. You're both nodding, so you're familiar. <laughs> so into it, yes. <laughs> they have such wonderful research. And one thing they found is that the average couple waits six years in an unsatisfying relationship before seeking out couples therapy. So couples, when they come to couples therapy, often have so much to unpack, often a lot of resentments, frustrations, very entrenched in their patterns of relating to each other. And some are even coming wondering if they should stay in their relationship at all. I think that actually is part of what leads to the stigma around couples therapy is this idea that you're in crisis. That's not always the case, but it often is that something has come to a head. Now, is that because there's a stigma around it that people wait a really long time until they feel like it's quote unquote bad enough? Maybe, right? It's not helping the, the stigma. But it's very different than premarital counseling, which is all about hopefulness for the future and a commitment to a shared life together. Would you say that marriage counseling is like proactive and couple therapy is more reactive? Yes, I think that's a really great way to describe it. Uh, one way I like to think of it is that it's the difference between like a treatment and a vaccine. So if you think of couples therapy as the treatment for relationship distress, then premarital counseling would be the vaccine. Because you're going when you're feeling like, quote unquote, healthy, right, in, in a good, healthy place in your relationship, you get exposed to the challenging, hot topics of relationships, and you're building up your ability to fight off disconnection. And then you have those skills in your back pocket to draw on in the future when times are tougher. I, I am think obsessed that's a with fantastic this. <laughs> analogy. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. I also love how thinking about it that way can help for a lot of couples who deal with like, you know, maybe there's divorce in their family or like mm -hmm. their parents had rocky relationships that they feel like they've maybe had a negative experience, you know, seeing or they, they want to do the opposite of. And it helps like to recognize that like this is a proactive thing that you can do. Like you're not just subject to like you're doomed to fail because somebody else before you did. It's like there's things that you can do too. Wow, I really mm -hmm. like that. Okay, so we've thrown around the word skills a lot with needing skills for a happy lasting relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is something like I think skills in general are something that are hard to talk about. They're hard to like quantify or articulate. Mm -hmm. So this could be a challenging question, but can you name the skills that you need for a happy lasting relationship? Definitely. So in my work with couples, I've identified three necessary skill sets for satisfying lasting relationships. So the way I've broken down what I see as necessary is number one is emotion regulation skills. Number two, communication skills. And three are conflict skills. So emotion regulation skills are the ability to clearly communicate and flexibly manage our emotions. In my work with couples, I see these skills as underlying every other relationship skill. Wow. Being able to move ourselves from a place of dysregulation, being overwhelmed into a place of feeling safe, feeling calm. That's what allows us to shift from disconnection to connection and access the parts of our brain that are like, oh, right. This is how I communicate more effectively. Oh, right. This is how I make up after this conflict. So it looks like uh, emotion naming. So being able to clearly and accurately name and communicate how we're feeling, which is really tough. It's not something that we learn how to do. Uh, the other is emotion regulation. So those are how we soothe ourselves. So one category that 
we talk about a lot in the therapy world is self-soothing. So self-soothing can look like deep breathing, going for a run, taking a cold shower, listening to music, calling a friend, things that help us calm down when we're feeling overwhelmed. It's things that I'm sure that you and your listeners all do all the time without even putting much thought into it. But being able to intentionally in the moment be like, oh, I need to go do that thing right now, or this conversation is going to go haywire. That's self-soothing. And then there's co-regulation, which is not something that we talk about as much, but it's using our partner as a soothing tool. So neuroscience is showing us more and more that being with a trusted other is similar to being with a parent when we're children, that connecting can actually change our neurochemistry and our brain's response to threat. And it can soothe us in the moment, holding hands, taking a, like getting a long hug, talking things through, dancing together, playing catch, right? Like being bodily in sync. These are all ways that we can co-regulate. We live in such an independence focused culture of like, I'll step away and I'll cool down myself, which is great. And if our partner's also dysregulated, that's what we got to do. But there are also times when you've had a really rough day at work and you can go rely on your partner. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with dependence. I think dependence has gotten a really bad rap in our culture. And that's what partnership is for, actually, is to lean on one another and to draw on this thing that our brain is wired to do. There's like so much coming up for me. I don't know, because you hear the you hear the word codependency brought up in a lot of situations now. And so I think in some ways it almost like encourages people to be like more independent or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was also thinking about how like attachment style plays into that sort of those dynamics as well. I could talk to you for hours about attachment style. So I I feel like it's like a a juicy, but dangerous tangent for us, but (laughs) but people's attachment styles, what I love about people reading about them, learning about them is that this idea of we can get dysregulated when we feel disconnected and then we can have tools to shift ourselves into a place of greater connection and that the way that that dysregulation looks and what we need to soothe ourselves is really connected to our attachment style. And so by learning your attachment style, it can help you figure out what emotion regulation strategies are most effective for you. And it can also help you see in your partner when they're dysregulated. Because some people, when they're overwhelmed, they go into a shutdown. And another person might go into a place of really wanting connection. And those are actually both reflections of a same or similar internal experience. I think that knowing your attachment style and people's curiosity about that is really wonderful for their relationships. Do you have a favorite resource that you might point to to learn more about attachment styles? So I think the book Attached is popular for a reason. I think it's really (laughs) understandable. I think it's really clear. Um, So that's usually the first resource that I recommend to my patients and to my couples. Awesome. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. So that was emotional regulation skills. And then the second thing was communication skills. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So communication skills are how to be a good listener and how to be a good speaker. So ways for both partners to feel heard and understood. And then the third skill set needed for a happy lasting relationship are conflict skills. So that's the ability to argue and vent frustrations while still being respectful and then making up in a way that helps you grow stronger and more connected as a couple. So those are the three skills 
uh, emotion regulation, communication, and conflict. Those are the areas that psychological research has found to be most beneficial to romantic relationships. I love how thought out like the whole approach is. Thank you. So conflict skills being the last one you mentioned. I guess we can imagine lots of conflict can come up during wedding planning specifically. Yes. What are like the common things that couples kind of experience during that time? Right. As you and your listeners know, it's an exciting time getting married and it's also a very stressful time. Uh, And when something is so meaningful and anxieties are so high, conflict is really normal and should even be expected. So I just want to put that out there. Like, this is not a bad thing if these conflicts are coming up. It's actually super normal and really healthy. It'll help you work through as a couple some tough spots. In my work with engaged couples, I see four common sources of conflict coming up when they're planning their weddings. One is perfectionism pressures. Two is differing money values. Three is navigating boundaries with families. And four is division of the labor of wedding planning. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you guys had someone on recently to talk about perfectionism. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that so many couples can relate to, especially brides, like that feeling of just wanting everything to be picture perfect, beautiful, Instagram worthy, and Mm -hmm. just the amount of pressure that that puts on not just the bride, but like the couple period, Mm -hmm. because they're both, you know, in the throes of planning this event. Right. There's all of this pressure to have the perfect day. And there's also this sudden pressure once you're engaged for things to be perfect in the relationship. This is something I see a lot, especially in people who are more perfectionistically oriented, which is that you get engaged and now your partner isn't just your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your partner. They're the person right? They are this person who has all of this expectation, thoughts, fantasies, and fears that come up from our own histories. And both people are having these experiences simultaneously of like, oh, wow, this is it. And so what makes it even harder is that then you're also planning this perfect day and it compounds this need for everything to be perfect. And that brings up so much conflict. Uh, conflicts that are actually so important to growing closer as a couple. But relationship perfectionists often see conflict as a failure. So then these quote-unquote imperfections become a source of conflict in themselves, right? And so it becomes this really vicious cycle of needing to make things perfect and kind of trying to get rid of important conflict rather than work through it and resolve it. And it just builds and builds upon itself. I feel like this is something we've been like pulling the thread on for a really long time. Mm -hmm. You articulated it so beautifully. So I'm really curious to know if you feel like there's anything that collectively we can do to help kind of shift this like narrative of perfectionism. Because I think like you had mentioned, like especially if you like have perfectionist tendencies, but I do really feel like just overall as a society, we all kind of perpetuate the trope that like once you get engaged everything should be perfect yes what can we do to like help move past that that feeling relieve Mm -hmm. ourselves of all this pressure (laughs) yeah yeah you know you spoke earlier about kind of the disney phenomenon of a fairy tale wedding and i think there's also something in social media around having a perfect relationship and i think what we could do better as a society is have more and more examples of the imperfections of real relationships. 
and to remind people that perfect relationships do not exist. It is not a thing. Your partner is going to disappoint you because they're a human being. No one's going to meet our needs 100% of the time or even 90% of the time. And so this wish in our and belief in our culture that there is such a thing and you just have to find that person who you're going to be so compatible with, who you'll never be disappointed by, you'll never misalign with or be disconnected from, it leads to a lot of disappointment. We can be disappointed by our partner and they can still be a wonderful person in our lives, that we can still be so satisfied, so happy, so connected, and that we can actually be connected through the disappointments. That's what also the communication and conflict skills are about, is that just because things aren't perfect doesn't mean we have to be disconnected. And I think that communication that there's an in-between, it doesn't have to be so black and white where things are either perfect or they're in crisis. We can learn from each other. Yeah, I also think it's like the idea of like growing and changing together with your partner. It feels like because there's that like proposal moment and then like that wedding moment that now it's just forever the two of you in that state <laughs> until you die. <laughs> like till death do his part. And it's like, no, the, the idea is that you have a partner there to be growing and changing alongside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And being open to that in your partner, I think is part of that is also challenging this perfectionistic mindset of like, we need to get things like neat and orderly so right. that I can feel safe because things feel more in control. Whereas to change and grow with someone is about maintaining lifelong curiosity about them. That's hard. It's actually hard to not put someone in a box after years and years and years, but to really be open to what they're sharing with you. That's that communication skill of being a good listener, really taking in of like, Oh, something new is important to this person, or there's this part of you that I haven't seen before. That's intriguing. That's exciting be a turn on actually, and can help sustain desire over time. We need to challenge the part of ourselves that might want to hold on tightly out of fear to access the part of ourselves that can be curious and grow. I'm like imagining some way that you, I'm giving you this homework, Annabelle, can <laughs> reimagine vows mm -hmm. that encompass all of those like ideas and then maybe we bring you back after you've worked on it and you share those vows in another episode. Because I feel Homework like assignment. I feel like you were really like everything I was hearing you say was bringing together such a cool way to talk about vows that's kind of a departure from the mm. traditional language that can like help understand it a little bit more. I love that idea. I'll I'll take the homework. I'll work Amazing. on that. <laughs> it's like more realistic and more honest about the relationship that you're entering into and like commitment you're making to each other. Which I think um, is the, one of the values of your community, right? Is that authenticity and being open to what works for you two as a couple or works for that person as, as the bride. Okay, Absolutely. now I'm going to be controversial too and say can we reimagine proposals that maybe mm -hmm. change this kind of narrative? You know, obviously it's so fun and like who doesn't love a proposal video and you like get to watch like the creative thing that they did. But it's like when you really think about it, like if you've gotten to that point, especially if you've gone out and purchased a ring or something, you knew 
likely that like the answer is going to be yes. It's not like (laughs) hinging on the question, will you marry me as much as it's like, will you commit to being curious about me forever? I don't know. Like, you know, like I'm wondering if there's a cool thing that we could reimagine with proposals as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with proposals, I think there's also a way in which still this is kind of under the umbrella of perfectionism pressures that often the person being proposed to has expectations of what is going to be said. Like I have so many friends who are like, oh my gosh, he didn't get down on one knee or she forgot to ask me, right? Something like that. Like, and, and it's not really about not having expectations, but I actually think that there can be more communication, right? Like you probably have talked about marriage together. You may have even talked about rings together, right? You may even shop for rings together. So maybe there can be also a moment to share what your wants and needs are for this proposal moment. I I think that's a big part of getting rid of the disappointments in relationship is that honest and direct communication of our wants and needs, really destigmatizing that, that there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, my whole life I've grown up envisioning that when I get proposed to, you say my first, middle, and last name. Your partner may not even know that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of being like, oh, if they're the right person, they'll just magically know. It's like, yes. No, you have to say something. Don't set your partner up to fail. (laughs) Exactly. And not mind reading is something that is such a core communication skill. I think we talked about like the concept of askers and guessers. I had heard of this concept of um, the way that people are taught to communicate in their family. Like some people will be direct and tell you exactly like what they want, need, expect, or desire from you. And Mm -hmm. others will like be a bit more passive aggressive about it where Mm -hmm. they'll kind of like make a statement and like expect you to fill in the gaps, Mm -hmm. you know, and like read their mind and come to that conclusion on your own. And so it's like, they say that you're either from an ask family or a guest family. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that differentiation and that communication around how our family dynamics so powerfully impact the way that we communicate in relationships. It actually makes me think of the second conflict area, which is different money values. Mm -hmm. because money is something that is so tied up in meaning from our family of origin and early life experiences. And it's also something that we're not often taught to communicate uh, directly. When you're misaligned on your values and you don't know the details of your fiance's financial situation, it can cause a lot of tension and conflict that comes out sideways through conversations of, should we do buffet or plated? dinners, right? But that's not actually what the crux is. It's something around money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and these beliefs about the value of money can come from our families. Like you were talking about these different types of families, different family approaches, and families may also be contributing financially. Right. Yeah, which adds a whole other layer to the already uh, complicated cake yes. of wedding planning. <laughs> well, and I think it actually, that third layer is that third area of conflict, which is navigating boundaries with family. Yes. Right. Like families often have their own dreams and their own expectations for their child's wedding and can insert those ideas into wedding planning, either explicitly or indirectly, right? Maybe they're askers versus guessers. It's communicated somehow, whether it's direct or indirect depends on the family style. Yeah. But when those expectations conflict with your 
wishes as a couple or if each of your family's expectations conflict with each other, it often falls on the couple to set boundaries with their family to protect their new family unit as a couple, what I sometimes call like the couple bubble. And so that can be really difficult for couples because it's often the first time that you're doing that, right? It's the first time that you as a couple are asserting your needs as a unit of two. Yeah. And then the families for the first time are, are getting hit with like a boundary with their child, no matter which side it is. And it's like, whoa, mm-hmm. like there's, there's navigating like that with the families too, I think. Mm-hmm. And their, the family's reaction to that boundary being set. Like, yes. uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's mm-hmm. a lot that goes on. It's, it can be really intense. And as you're protecting that couple bubble, what's going on within it, right? What's going on between you as a unit of two. And one thing that can be tough is that if you're not a team, how do you protect that boundary? And one thing that comes up a lot around team work when you're planning a wedding is the fourth conflict area, which is division of labor. One partner's typically kind of the planner and the other might hang back more. It can shift depending on what's going on. So maybe one of you takes the lead on planning vacations and the other takes more of the initiative on buying things for around the home, but it can emerge in wedding planning in a way that one person is doing a lot of the work while the other is kind of hanging back, trying to be supportive. But it often means one partner ends up feeling like they're doing all the heavy lifting and the other might actually feel left out and a bit steamrolled or criticized for their contributions or lack thereof. So there's a lot of room for resentment, a lot of room for conflict and planning a wedding is a really big task, right? It encompasses so much. And so it can be really overwhelming to think of how to approach that as a team. What does the best teamwork look like between a couple when it comes to the wedding planning? Do you think, is it working like together on each aspect or like divide and conquer or like concurrently or Mm -hmm. what do you think? A bit of both. Uh, I actually have created a guide to dividing up wedding planning labor. Uh, It's available actually as a free download on my website. So your listeners can go to beforetheleap.com and find it there. Um, It's a guide to conflict-free wedding planning. So it includes rules around how to do this and a spreadsheet, actually like a usable spreadsheet template to divide it up. But essentially the approach is that you divide as much as you can. People are responsible for their own domains, their own tasks, um, and you meet regularly to review it together. And so during those meetings, you can reassign tasks as needed. You play to each other's strengths and you also give each other a lot of support and gratitude. Because often when we're doing things, when we're planning a wedding, when we're cleaning up the house, we really only see what we do. We don't usually actually see what our partner's doing because we live in our own brain. We aren't with them when they're you know, vacuuming the floor. So getting to sit down together for 15 minutes once a week and go over your task list together, check things off, share what you've done, hear what your partner's done, it can be an opportunity to thank each other and really feel like, we're, oh, we're working on this as a team. I see what you're doing. I feel seen in my efforts and appreciated in my efforts as well. And it can be a way to go about this from a place of gratitude and generosity for each other, rather than kind of a tally keeping, frustrated, resentful place. 
Yeah, they say that for many, many couples, your wedding is your first team group project that you're doing together. Yes. <laughs> well, and a lot of times it's like the first time you're managing a budget for something mm -hmm. large together. If you haven't lived together prior to getting married or if you kind of split things evenly 50-50 and you've never had to like manage a joint pot of money and allocate mm -hmm. it across a lot of things, mm -hmm. there's a lot of compromise and conversation and like so much that goes into it. Exactly. It's about celebrating your love and joining up as a unit. So having this shared project, it can, as you're saying, be this opportunity to set yourselves up for many projects down the road, right? Many opportunities where you're going to be a team, whether that's renovating a house together, retiring together, what that looks like, having children together. Yeah, I think it's so needed, you know, like, like you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, you know, a lot of like premarital prep does happen in like a religious context. And so for couples who maybe don't, you know, have a faith practice or a church home or things like that, like there's not really many places where couples can go to get this kind of support specifically for this period of their lives. And so I think it's something that's really needed. And, you know, with all of the statistics out there about you know, the percentage of couples who do end up, you know, divorced because of conflicts with communication, money, these sorts of things, like how would those statistics be affected if couples are really taught these important skills prior to tying the knot? Mm -hmm. And in terms of the religious aspect, I actually spoke with religious leaders of various faiths as I was developing the workshop to see what they were seeing, what they were needing, what their premarital counseling approach was like. And they expressed such a desire for something like this to supplement the one-on-one -on -one work that they do because they're not therapists, right? They're not trained in this skill building necessarily. And mm -hmm. the psychological evidence-based element, they also would have trouble knowing where to refer couples who were interfaith, who were LGBTQ+. Right, couples who often have felt excluded from these workshops in the past. Some couples don't have important conversations because they assume a certain level of shared belief system. And while they may have, you know, subscribe to the same religion, they may not, it may not translate in the same way that they assume, right? And so there actually can be a way that interfaith couples go into relationships having to have a lot of more explicit conversations around, okay, what do you want child rearing to look like? What parts of your faith are important to you and why, right? Rather than assuming one person might say, okay, so we're going to take our kids to church every Sunday, right? And the, and the other might be like, oh, I was just envisioning that we go on Christmas, right? That there can be a way that actually a certain level of perceived similarity can limit the conversation or make it seem almost unnecessary in the beginning when actually it's something that I think all couples should be discussing. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and that totally makes sense that you just kind of like go in with these assumptions like, oh, well, we both grew up, you know, this brand of Christian. Mm -hmm. So like, we're on the same page. We're good. <laughs> you know, right. Well, yeah, because regardless of your religious affiliation or not, you're still never taught the skills to be in a relationship. Exactly.
So these are the important things that need to be taught in school. You know, Mm -hmm. these communication relationship skills, how to pay our taxes. Like, why are we not taught these important things in school? That's right. It's not actually about being perfectly aligned on things. Actually, the Gottman Institute says that 69% of all couples arguments are unsolvable. Like you're not going to get aligned. It's really about the emotion used when you're talking about it with each other. So being able to stay curious, stay connected, stay engaged when you're having uh, differences, that is really what leads to relationship success. And it's not too late to learn. So head to beforetheleap.com to start on your relationship skills education journey. Anyone interested in learning more about how to build these happy lasting marriages can check out our website beforetheleap.com or check us out on Instagram at before the leap. So the letter B, the number four, the leap. And there you'll find information on our upcoming workshops, as well as information about how to continue strengthening these skills in your relationship. It was so great to talk to you. And I think we'll probably have to continue this conversation again. I love it. It was so nice meeting both of you, speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Bouquet Toss, a podcast brought to you by The Budget Savvy Bride. We would love for you to join us in our free private community to get support and inspiration from other couples currently planning their weddings too. Consider The Bouquet tossed in your direction so you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. As always, stay savvy and stay tuned for our next episode. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on... Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.